Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Welcome to the show that aims to help you lead according to God's purposes. A church across town has invited you to partner with them in a neighbourhood project. They haven't been going very long and you're not sure about them. And so you see if they have a website and you ask around to find out what they believe and what they're about. But the question I want to ask is, what are you looking for? What beliefs and practices would determine whether you say yes to partnering with them? Would it depend on what the project was? If it was, for example, housing refugees, would that be different from, say, running a food bank? And would that be different to running an alpha course? Christians in leadership certainly need to be discerning as regards to the local churches they work with, the charities that they believe are on their side, and how they work alongside other Christians in the commercial and political spheres. But this doesn't just go for churches. We all meet people who may claim to be Christian, but what brand of Christian are they? And how should we react if they're different from us? Well, I'm delighted this week to be joined on the leadership show by Jonathan Lamb. He's worked for most of his career in interdenominational settings, in leadership roles with the student uh, movements of UCCF and IFES, and as director of Langham Preaching. And his new book explores these issues and more. It's entitled Essentially One, Striving for the Unity God Loves. And so I'm looking forward to sorting through whether my boundaries are correct or not. And I believe he's going to help you too. So great to have you on the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Andy. Lovely to be here. Um, so I mean, the first time we met, uh, we were in an interdenominational setting. I was involved in the CU at Y College, and uh, you came to speak, as I recall, in the early 1990s. I don't know if you remember that. Just about do, yes. And I, <laughs> I can't believe you're looking so youthful, actually. Well, you too, <laughs> you too, Jonathan. You're very kind. Um, <laughs> well, a, a sort of mutual uh, ob observation of each other. Um, but, I mean, your book roots these questions about unity in the way God has brought us together in Christ. So it's just good to remind ourselves of those things, I think, probably. Yes, I think um, it's really important when we come to a subject like this just to take a step back and to remember the big storyline of the Bible, which is all about rescue and restoration. Um, there is, of course, a unity in our world, which is a unity of rebellion against God. And God's good purpose in the storyline of the Bible is to bring things back together again, to restore things as they should be. And it begins with the promise of Abraham that all families of the earth will be blessed. So that's already a pointer to God's purposes of bringing things together. And uh, then, of course, we have this wonderful statement in the New Testament that God's purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, as Ephesians 1. It's God's mission statement, if you like, his intention to bring everything together, back together again, restored, reconciled in Jesus Christ. And, uh, of course, that letter, Ephesians goes on to explain how that is done through Jesus, who creates one new humanity, as that was Jew and Gentile initially, but as all those who come to know Christ are brought together in the one family, no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens in the one family. So it's a fantastic big theme right through the Bible. Uh, we see it in Acts as the gospel goes over all kinds of barriers and, and creates unity amongst God's people in churches, irrespective of race or ethnicity or class or culture. And we see it today. It's, it's amazing all around the world to see the same miracle happening. So I think you're right that uh, this theme of unity 
ultimately is to do with what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, there are many things we've got to do to maintain that unity, um, but it's not achieved by committees or councils or uh, resolutions. It's been achieved through what God has done in the Lord Jesus. So that's really the important starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you speak in the book of the importance of the unity of witness for evangelism. We alluded to the fact we met because uh, of UCCF, which unites, of course, Christians mm. on campus. And uh, I was learning as a young student the value of uniting with other Christians of other denominations in that setting to to make Christ known at, at Y College down in, in New Ashford in Kent. And you were involved, of course, in a, at a national level with that. Yeah, I think probably all of our listeners would agree that uh, if the Christian message is all about reconciliation and about God's purposes of unity, then we would completely lose credibility in our witness if we were not demonstrating that unity ourselves. It would be um, lacking in integrity to talk about uh, unity and not, not live it. Um, and I think that's often the problem some people have with, with Christians or with, with local churches, and they may even give up on the church, and not because of a crisis of faith, but because of a crisis of credibility. Uh, they can't align their experience of a local church with, with a kind of lofty rhetoric, which the New Testament uses to describe God's new society. So it's a really important thing that uh, it, it's closely related to the credibility of our witness, and it's also vital for the effectiveness of our evangelism. Um, I've mentioned this big picture a moment ago when we were talking about uh, God's mission statement to bring everything together in unity under Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, well, this is really, the church is really God's pilot project. Uh, we are the first installment of what's going to happen to the entire universe. So we should be a, a model of what that unity is about. So it's a really important issue, the, the witness that we give. And I suppose most of us um, would, would think of Jesus' prayer in John 17, which includes several important things about unity. But one is that unity is a very powerful witness to Jesus himself uh, in the prayer. He says, may they, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, I very much agree with your illustration about um, the Christian Union, uh, Andy, and, and the effectiveness of that actually all around the world. I'll just give one example before I finish on this question. Um, when I was working with IFES, which is the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Um, I always remember the conflict that was occurring in Burundi and Rwanda, the um, ethnic conflict between Hutu and Tutsi tribes. And it was remarkable that Christian students in Burundi were absolutely determined to stand together as Hutu and Tutsi and not allow their ethnic differences to divide them. And it was so powerful that uh, um, the government invited these Christian groups to tour the country to talk about their faith and why commitment to Jesus Christ was more significant than their own ethnic identity. Um, it was costly in, in neighboring Rwanda. Quite a lot of uh, leaders in the board and, and uh, staff and some students lost their lives, but it was a very powerful demonstration of the fact that uh, our, our unity uh, is a powerful demonstration of the gospel and that in turn makes our witness credible and effective. Oh, fabulous, uh, Jonathan. Thank you. That, that's a great, great illustration. Um, in my introduction, Jonathan, I uh, alluded to this dilemma that 
that that Christians in leadership, church leaders, and and we as individuals can find when we're we're working out kind of how we work with others who may differ from us a little. And in the book, you use this idea of of theological triage or the the doctrine of difference as a as a way of thinking through our relations with other churches and other Christians. So maybe you could just unpack that that concept, which we may be new to to us um before we move on maybe to look at specific areas where we we maybe yeah. need to decide whether we're on board with someone or not yes a very helpful idea that various authors have used so we might be familiar with the idea of going to accident and emergency i'm just sitting opposite the john radcliffe hospital actually in oxford and uh, if you go there it's, it's a pretty busy place and one of the most important people is the triage nurse who has the job of determining the priority of patient treatments. It's based on the severity of each person's condition. And uh, one writer on this said, well, they, they, we need a similar uh, process in, in uh, thinking Christianly. So in the, in the hospital, um, it might be that your, your condition is so urgent that you need to see a doctor immediately. That's a primary issue. On the other hand, um, you may have a problem that's, ur- that's important, but not so urgent. You may have to sit there for, I don't know how many hours, but uh, that, that's secondary. And then for someone else, the doctor or the triage nurse will say, no, you just need to go home, take a paracetamol, have a sleep, and you'll be okay. That's a kind of pri- a third tertiary level. So in the same way, we could say that when we look at the Bible, um, Christian teaching could be ranked in this kind of way. Some people even call it a kind of dogmatic rank. And there are, first of all, first order or primary doctrines, they're so foundational that to compromise on those things would be to lose the Christian gospel, the message itself. And the New Testament shows us that in various ways. Paul talks about certain things of being of first importance, for example. And he also gives other lists in his uh, writings in the astral epistles that show, well, this is what the gospel is really all about. And then there are second order doctrines, and those are important, but they're not so critical. And so Christians who agree wholeheartedly on the primary truths might find themselves disagreeing on some of these secondary things. And that's what often what leads them to different churches or to different denominations. It might be your view of of baptism or your view of women in leadership or how you exercise uh, spiritual gifts and so on. Doesn't mean they're not important to call them secondary. They are important, but on the other hand, they're not so significant that Christians necessarily must always divide over them. And then the third, third order doctrines, they're, they're what we might call them the paracetamol doctrines. In other words, they're the issues that even in one congregation, my own church here in Oxford, I'll, I'll have slightly different views from someone else on particular issues. So we might all agree on the second coming of the Lord Jesus, for example, but we might disagree over the exact details of timing or sequence of events and so on. So um, this theological triage is really important for our churches, um, both to make sure that we're holding on to what really matters and not fighting battles that we don't need to fight, but also making sure that we we don't lose fellowship with other Christians um, over issues which are are really secondary or or tertiary. there's much more that can be said about that, but I hope that that uh, illustrates the, the importance. No, that's of that's idea. enormously helpful. Thank you, and and I think 
if if that's the first time someone's heard that, that's I think they will find that enormously, enormously good. I suppose the for those who uh, who've sought been they've been Christians a while, been Christians in leadership for a while. Hmm. One of the one of the the key problems, of course, is that they they may hold as as primary something that others regard as secondary, and vice versa. Yes, and and I I, I do need to touch on a few areas with you, Jonathan, just just to kind of tease out, you know, how, how we might be thinking about them. One is that you alluded to the male female roles, and I um, talking to someone who was working with the Evangelical Alliance, who was expecting to discover that um you know to the two groups the complementarians and the egalitarians they might agree to differ with one another but actually some of the egalitarians were saying no this is so central to you know this is a primary issue that we mm-hmm. should not disenfranchise I- women in that case yes um and and obviously some some of those who believe creation evolution who believe a six-day creation would say well no the scriptures say it this is primary so i i, I guess i just need to tease out the the grey areas, if you like, in these, mm. if, if we may. Yeah. Yes, well, thank you for those easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, we have to be honest and realistic, as you are, I think, in, 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 and probably our listeners will immediately be thinking of other things too, mm. where it's not clean, it's not straightforward always. Um, there are subjects where people who share exactly the same conviction about the mm. Bible, in other words, it's authoritative, it leads us in, in truth, but who would come to very different conclusions about uh, some of the matters you've mentioned. Um, let me take the creation one first, because I remember um, years ago when I was a student, actually, there was a wise Christian apologist, a man called Francis Schaeffer. I don't know oh, if yes. you remember his name. And um, he was, he's wrote a, a couple of very good books about creation. And um, he, he underlined what was essential, what is essential in the Genesis story, which every Christian can affirm. So, for example, God is the creator who brought everything into being. Uh, God ensured that his creation was good, was was very good. God made male and female in his image and likeness. Uh, Humankind was given responsibility to care for creation and so on. In other words, he underlined what we need to do in some of these areas is affirm the big issues. What are the fundamental things that really matter in terms of the biblical worldview? Then, of course, you can have other discussions about how long creation took or what processes were involved. But ultimately, these do not uh, radically affect the core teaching, which we all agreed on creation. Mm. But my concern with with, uh, affirming um, that position, which is a perfectly respectable position to hold, um, is that it shouldn't be Come a test of orthodoxy. That's really what Schaefer was talking about. In other words, don't make it uh, a, a point where you so divide over Christians that you you will have no fellowship with them. To take the question of men and women, uh, uh, which you mentioned, and um, I, I think this situation is very similar. People are equally committed to the Bible and uh, to affirming those central foundation truths. Um, And therefore, the same thing has to happen. And that is, whatever your view, you must say, well, first of all, men and women are created equally in God's image and likeness, as we've said, and therefore they have equality and dignity. And then we know from the New Testament that every believer, male and female, is granted gifts which need to be deployed for the benefit of the whole body. 
So every member of the church, male and female, needs to be playing their part. So those are some core things we can all agree with. Uh, we're not uh, just talking about restrictions. We are saying we need every, every member of the body to play their part. But there will be differences in relation to whether women can be in leadership or whether women can teach the Bible. And um, I think in those circumstances, my own conviction, if I may put it on the table, so to speak, is that this is a secondary issue. Um, I should mention another book, if people want to follow this up, published actually after my own, which is called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. It's <laughs> right. a good book by Gavin Ortland, And he has much fuller treatment of what is primary, what is secondary, what's tertiary. Um, he says the same, that probably on this issue, it's vital and of course, it will determine how churches structure themselves in terms of leadership and teaching and so on. Um, but it is not a hill to die on. It is a secondary issue, which means Christians should not lose fellowship over this matter. No, well, thank you. That's, that's enormously helpful. Now, I, I do need to touch, Jonathan, on, a, on an issue that I think some would expect me to ask you about. And that's the, uh, the, the same-sex marriage issue, which, of course, the Methodist Church have are now... Um, saying that that though some churches within this uh, group can can now marry uh, folk of the same sex and um, and there are Christians who are, have big dilemmas because for them this is a primary issue because they believe that uh, those who are sanctioning these issues are sanctioning sinful behavior and it's um, yes, um no, sure. I, I i think it's really important to air it and for us all to be mm, discussing this uh, mm. as we've been invited to if we're in an anglican churches but also yeah. methodist um i think it is slightly more demanding than the previous issues we've just been mm. discussing and not least because of the very personal and partial nature of some of yeah. these issues we, we know that people can be injured very deeply in discussions of this nature so i do think that um it is more demanding from that point of view. And perhaps unlike the other topics we've just been mentioning, there would be some Christians who would say that in the case of marriage and human sexuality, uh, what the Bible teaches is clear. Um, and actually, even those who don't agree with the orthodox or traditional view might even say the same. Yes, the Bible is clear, um, but that we need to adjust in the light of, of contemporary circumstances. Um, I think that what we have to do here is, again, try to affirm as best we can uh, the truth of Scripture as a priority. In other words, what are the big issues that underlie this? And of course, when we're talking about human sexuality, we're talking about creation, about human identity. Uh, we're talking about the nature of society, the nature of family life. And uh, uh, as is said by some believers, of course, we're talking about Christ and the church, because Jesus himself uses marriage as uh, an example, uh, a, mo a model, if you like, of what will truly be the case with Christ and the church. Um, I think a good example of that, if I may mention it, is the Church of England Evangelical Council to put out a very good video called The Beautiful Story. And um, that's a, a good way of demonstrating biblical truth as they uh, perceive it, uh, with, with humility and with grace and with honesty. I've used that word because I do think that's important, including for evangelicals like myself, who would broadly hold a more conservative and traditional view. Um, we are all sexual sinners uh, by Jesus' definition. We're all seeking God's grace to live as forgiven sinners, not in isolation, 
or in shame, but supported by the redeemed and reconciled family of God. So our churches, whatever position they may come to, must be places of welcome and support. And if a church uh, such as my own would call Christian men and women, uh, whether gay or straight, to live a life of faithful discipleship in line with orthodox biblical teaching, then our responsibility must be must be to be a, a true family, a genuine community, a home which offers friendship and support. So just to sum, sum it up uh, very briefly, I think we want to affirm biblical priorities. For me, that would be the, the key issue. Um, we want to do so um, with, with genuine humility, recognizing our own uh, circumstances of sinful failure. We want Christian community in the church, whatever decision is made, to be one which is truly supportive of uh, believers, whatever their uh, orientation and background. And we want to engage in any discussion with grace and gentleness. Um, I, I could say a lot more, but I hope those summary points are, are enough. No, that's, that's, that's fabulous. And I, I thank you for addressing it in, in such a short and concise way, Jonathan. Um, I just, uh, I think it'd be useful to us to, just to, as we come to a close really is, is that there is, there are occasions where we're going to disagree. Mm -hmm. um, and I think your book has a lovely tone about it in your encouragement to, to disagree agreeably. And I don't know if you want to just uh, tease that out a little bit, because mm -hmm. even within local churches, there'll be people that we, we serve on a rotor with who we, we know actually are in a different place to us on, on maybe a, a theological issue. Yes, and indeed divisions of all kinds, and sometimes theological, doctrinal, but often temperamental, you know, often to do with the nature of the seats in the church or the colour <laughs> of the walls. It, it happens, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I think that there's enough emphasis in the New Testament to remind us um, that even with uh, in the midst of, of uh, difference and disagreement, we must do so in line with gospel culture. So we believe in the gospel and its truth, but we must also act appropriately. Um, the subtitle of the little book I've written is uh, uh, Striving for the Unity God Loves, which really comes from something that Paul said in Ephesians 4. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the reason why I wrote the book was discovering how much uh, emphasis there is in scripture on this urgent call to live together as God's people. It was a priority effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. He says, you should be completely humble and gentle. And um, those qualities are really important for Christian leaders. If we're, if we have uh, those listening to us today, that um, they're a little bit countercultural, but I think they're very significant uh, in, in the way we lead that humility and gentleness are so vital for particularly situations of disagreement and friction. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Um, and even opponents need to be gently instructed. I also have a chapter in the book on language, which these days, of course, is really, really uh, challenging. It's become quite toxic certainly in the blogosphere, and uh, people refer to hate speech and the war on words. And we of all people, as Christian people, must demonstrate by our words the truth of the gospel to which we are committed. And Paul says the same in Ephesians 4. 
in, in urging us to use language properly. So I think there are, there are a number of ways in which we must agree um, agreeably, uh, or sorry, disagree agreeably, how we must try to do so with gentleness, with humility, um, with, with respect. The last thing I can say, Andy, you mentioned the doctrine of difference in one of your questions, and I haven't tackled that, but it's a really important and much neglected doctrine. And you find it in Romans 14 and 15, if people would like to read it. There he's talking about strong and weak Christians, some division over what food you should eat or what days you should honor. And he demonstrates a number of really important principles for how we can live together with differences, including our solidarity as believers in the Lord Jesus, uh, our belonging together in the family of God, the fact that all of us are accountable to the Lord, who is the judge, and of course, that we must concentrate on what really matters. He underlines uh, when he's, he's talking about uh, uh, the, the, the two groups, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, be clear about the really big issues. Don't, don't lose fellowship. Don't lose uh, uh, Christian harmony over some of these other issues. We may feel about them strongly, but the kingdom of God is not to do with necessarily to do with eating or drinking or, or uh, traditions or... Um, times of services or the way the seating is done or you know the host of things that Christians can disagree about it's to do with righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit so let's keep our eye on the really big things and I think that will help us manage the differences more easily. Jonathan, that's a fabulous place to finish. There's much more that we could say on this topic. We're really grateful for you and for helping us in our thinking on uh, what can be really major in terms of our uh, fellowship within churches and also fellowship with other uh, local churches and those outside the churches as well so thank you so Andy. much thank you andy thanks for having me on and uh, i wish all our listeners well that was my conversation with jonathan lamb the author of essentially one striving for the unity god loves i was so impressed by the way he stressed the importance of focusing on our underlying unity as fellow believers and majoring on the things that unite us. So I hope this conversation can be of support to us all as we work out how we work with one another and especially those who think differently to us. As always, there's more leadership show material on the Premier website and the podcast platforms where this show is available. It's my joy to bring you conversations every week. So this is Andy Peck looking forward to your company again next Sunday. Bye for now. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Email andy.peck at premier.org.uk.